For the reading of God's word, would you please rise if you're able? Acts 13, 13 is found on page 921 in your Pew Bible and also on the Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that he gave them judges until Samuel the, Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all of my will. Of this man's offspring, God had, has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, son of the family, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem, and their rulers because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. 
And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. This is the reading of God's word. Uh, That's quite a sermon. You think everybody's saying, yeah, that was a great sermon. Will you close in prayer, Pastor? (laughs) But uh, no, we're going to take a look at it a little more. Are you confident in the gospel? Does it just charge you up to move out and tell those who don't know about Christ the good news of Christ. We have a lot of reasons for our confidence to wane. In a scientific age, the resurrection of someone from the dead sounds like a myth. In a time when people are sensitive, so sensitive to animals that they are repulsed by animal sacrifices, what does the sound of the Blood of Christ being shed for sin sound like, to some it sounds like cosmic child abuse. In an era of self-reliance, of humanism, when people think that everyone is good at heart, our call that says Christ comes as a savior and you need a savior sounds like an affront. In a culture of pluralism, where every religion is seen as equal, equal path to God, the exclusivism of the gospel is railed against as arrogant and judgmental. In a period of prosperity, where people don't see their need for the gospel, what do we have to offer them in the gospel? There's a lot of reasons for our confidence to wane. 
I want us to look at this passage today and see that there are a number of reasons to be confident in that gospel. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, I trust that you will be inspired by the words of Paul. If you are yet a believer in Jesus Christ, I pray that you will give ear to all that the gospel has to offer as Paul unpacks his sermon. Let's pray. Our Father, your Holy Spirit is the only one that can make these truths real to us. You have sent the Spirit to us, first and foremost, to make Jesus Christ and his gospel real in our hearts. And I pray that for each of our hearts today, open us to you. In Christ we pray, amen. We have many reasons to lose confidence in the gospel. Paul had many more reasons to not have confidence in the gospel. Think of the time when he was preaching. The message of Jesus, the messenger and subject of his gospel. It was he and his message were so reviled that Jew and Gentile came together to send it to him and to put him to death. And the manner of death was a curse, for he was crucified on a cross. How could anyone worship one who had been crucified? To the Jew, it was the greatest of curses to be nailed to a tree. The Old Testament said that. And so they looked at Jesus not only as a failure, but as one that was cursed not just by men, but cursed by God himself. And this is the one they're upholding. Paul said that to the Jew, the gospel is a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, it's foolishness. One historian wrote, to revere a victim of crucifixion as the son of God appeared to Jews as theologically scandalous into the Greco-Roman world as lunacy. Paul preached that Jesus was savior to people who didn't believe they needed a savior. The Jews felt if they kept the, Jew, the law, the Mosaic law, they were fine with God. And they were meticulous in keeping that law. And if they did sin, they had the sacrificial system that took care of that. They had no need for a savior. But Christ preached Jesus as savior. And people of that age also believed like we do today that dead people stay dead. When Jesus preached about, when, when Paul preaches that Jesus raised, rose from the dead, there was no category in the Jewish mind or theology for that type of resurrection. They believed in resurrection, but the resurrection of everyone at the end of history, not one individual. And when Paul preaches in Athens to those great Greek philosophers, and they're giving him a listening ear until he says, and he rose from the dead. And that's when many of them said, threw up their hands and said, this guy's crazy. And Paul faced real persecution. 
He was a persecutor himself. And he stood beside and watched Stephen being stoned to death for preaching the gospel. And he knew that could be his fate as the Jewish community plotted incessantly to take his life. And yet, Paul had supreme confidence in the gospel, so much so he had to preach it, even if it would cost him his life, and it did. And in this passage, we're going to see five reasons that Paul was so confident in that gospel. The first is, the gospel transforms lives. The book of Acts shows the movement of the gospel into a world that begins to turn upside down. Peter first preaches the gospel. The day of Pentecost, 3,000 people become believers. A few days later in his second message, 5,000 more become believers. Person after person, day after day, people are coming to Jesus Christ. And in chapter 11, God brought Peter to the Gentiles. And the first Gentile, Cornelius, is saved. And so now the gateway has been opened from the Jew to the Gentile. Chapter 12 is a little bit of a parenthesis where we see the power of the gospel over the leaders of the day. And now in chapter 13, he moves back to, to that moment when the gospel is going to move from the Jews to the Gentiles. And the audience here in the synagogue is both Jew and God-fearer. And the God-fearers are Gentiles who have bought into Judaism. And we're going to see at the end, as the gospel goes to those Gentiles, they begin to explode in celebration about what the gospel brings. And the rest of the book unfolds into that world transformation as the gospel is brought even to the ends of the earth in Rome. It, the gospel changes lives. Rodney Stark, in his book, The Triumph of Christianity, talks about how Christianity triumphed and the dynamics of the first and second century. He cites four distinctives of Christianity that were so countercultural, yet they attracted people. It was the transformation that the gospel was doing in these people's lives that so changed them and made them so different. They were a light that was drawing people to Jesus Christ. And those four distinctives were first, the way Christians handled persecution. They went to their deaths with peace, with confidence. They would not retract back off of the gospel, even if it cost their lives. And they loved their persecutors and prayed for them. They were performing acts of mercy that had never been done before. If there was an unwanted child, he would often be brought out into the wilderness for wild animals to devour. Christians went out into those woods, took those children, and raised them as their own. 
when the plague hit, family members would leave the sick and flee to just let them die all alone because they were afraid of getting sick. The Christians stepped into those homes at the risk of their own lives and ministered to them. It was Christianity that saw and promoted the value of women as equal to men. It was Christianity that was multicultural. It was because of the Roman system of roads that people of different cultures were brought together for the first time. But they didn't meld together. They stayed separate and they were hostile to one another. We see that specifically between Jew and Gentile. Yet the cross of Christ breaks through that. For he says, we are all made in the image of God. We are all sinners and the grace of God reaches to everyone. We are all equal. And so Christianity, the gospel brought together Jew and Gentile, heathen, the religious, men, women, people of every nation. The gospel transforms lives and it transformed cultures and it transformed the world. We in the West don't see that as clearly as people do in other cultures because we've, the West embraced those foundational values and are living out of those values today. Think of it. Women being valued, acts of mercy, multiculturalism, People standing, even giving their lives for what they believe in. It's all because of the gospel. The gospel not only transforms lives, we see in this passage that the gospel puts history together. It's the only thing that makes sense of history. Paul, as he preaches, he says, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of Israel, the people of Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt, lifted up his arm, led them out of it. And for about 40 years he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them a land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel a prophet. Then they asked for a king. God gave them Saul, the son of Cush, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had been removed, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, a son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised before his coming, John had proclaimed the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose I am? I'm not he. No, but behold, after me is coming the one, the sandals of whom, whose feet I am not worthy to untie. So what 
Paul is doing here is he is speaking to the Jewish people with the Jewish scripture. He's laid out their history of being the chosen people for a very specific purpose. And he details ups and downs in their history and then points to David and all the hope that was in David and the blessings that were in David kingdoms and the hope that it would be his offspring that would be Messiah, that would bring the kingdom to the world. And it wasn't John the Baptist. It was Jesus. Without Jesus, the history of Israel will not make sense because the Messiah will not come because it's Jesus. The kingdom will not come. The glory of Israel to be a blessing to the world does not exist apart from Jesus Christ. And the same is true of our history. Uh, one commentator put it this way. In his message, Paul showed how through the vicissitudes of human history, God was working out his plan for creation and that this plan reached its zenith in the Christ event. Many people fear for the world as they see it heading towards self-destruction through moral degradation, war, or ecological irresponsibility. Man lives in cynicism and despair as savior after savior fails to satisfy the human thirst for an eternally secure solution to the problems of life. In other words, we all know this world is broken and nobody has found a savior. In Christ, the desire of the ages is fulfilled. People looking for the meaning of history and thinking that they will have to concede that it is meaningless need not come to the gloomy conclusion. There is hope. The plan of the creator of the universe is being worked out, and it's being worked out in the, per in the person of Jesus Christ. What was true of Israel is true for us. The world makes no sense without Christ. Paul was able to speak to the Jewish people using what the Jewish people all agreed with, the scripture. We can speak to a needy world with a truth and reality that everyone will agree with. And that is that this world is broken. There is too much pain, too much sorrow, too much sickness, too much famine, too many wars, too much terrorism, too much hatred. This is not the way it's supposed to be. And every human heart knows that, and the reason every human heart knows that is because we were all made for a different world, the world for which our hearts long. And that's a world of goodness and a world of love where there is no more war, where every tear is wiped away, where evil is vanquished. It's the world God created for us to live in. And we read that in the beginning chapters of Genesis. But something happened. Sin entered the world. 
Humanity rebelled against God. We, we pushed away his goodness and his love. Instead of allowing him to fulfill us completely, we turned to everything else, trying to fill the holes in our lives that God alone can fill. We pushed him off the throne of our lives and we usurped that throne and said, I will decide what's right and wrong in my life. I will decide what's good and evil for you. We've taken the place of God and this is why what we reap today, a broken world. And so as we look at that world, instead of saying, look at what we have done, it's very obvious that we are at fault. I can look at my own heart and say, I know the sin, the selfishness that's there. The problem's me. I need a savior. Instead, we say, God, why are you allowing such suffering and evil? And you know, God hates the suffering and evil more than you do. He's allowed it for a time, but he has envisioned the Eden that he created us for. And he hates the sin and suffering so much that he sent his son to experience all the suffering of the world, all the pain and consequences of our sin so he could put the world back together again. And he will when he returns. In the meantime, he can put lives back together again when we turn to him for fulfillment instead of sin. And we start to move beyond ourselves to care for and love for one another, to consider one another more important than ourselves just as Jesus did. Jesus is the one who makes sense of history. It's hopeless without him. We've tried for millennia after millennia. Thirdly, we can have confidence in the gospel because it's true. Some people say, well, it doesn't matter whether it's true or not, but if you have the hope in it, it makes you a better person and, and gives you some peace in life, then that's all that matters. It doesn't matter if it's true. That's not the case for Paul. We pick up in verse 28. And though they found him in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried that out, all that was written, they took him down from the tree, they laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from that dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news of what God promised to his fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. See, Paul wasn't into a personality cult. He wanted truth, solid historical evidence. And the truth of all of Jesus' claims are found and proven by his resurrection. 
Paul will say in 1 Corinthians, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised from Christ when he didn't do that. If Christ was not raised. But if Christ has, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep, those who've died as believers, they've perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are people most to be pitied. If he said, we only, if we have a non-resurrected Jesus, we are misrepresenting people, we are teaching falsehoods, we are lying to ourselves, and we are to be pitied. But Jesus is raised from the dead. And Paul points to the witnesses anybody could talk with. In 1 Corinthians 15, he delineates the, the, those witnesses, personally naming many of them, inciting how 500 at one time were witnesses. Pastor Brandon's going to delve into this more on Easter Sunday. Uh, if you want to pick up light reading, grab the 800-plus page tome of N.T. Wright, uh, The Resurrection of the Son of God, where he goes into the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and he addresses every objection, just about every objection raised by skeptics. Christ has raised. That means the gospel you preach is true. That should give us confidence. And the fact that the gospel offers salvation should give us confidence. Sometimes I, I look at my neighbor, Tim, and he is like, he's like the best guy. He, he's a wonderful personality. He knows everybody in the neighborhood. He's got a great family. He's so attentive to his kids, and he does anything for anybody. And I look at him, I say, gee, why does he need the gospel? I mean, what's it, what does it have to offer him? And I might say, well, it offers him eternal life. And I remember my brother's words, and he said, you know, I, I don't care about heaven. What does God do right now? What does he have to offer me right now? And see, Paul says he has a lot to offer. He offers salvation. Now, that means he does offer an eternal life with him. And I think still that's the biggest piece. We live 70, 80, 90 years here, and what? What's next? The Christian knows what's next. But salvation is a bigger word than you get a ticket to heaven or the kingdom. It means the deliverance of our lives. For Israel, it meant the bringing of the kingdom, the completion of history. For us, it means making our lives, which are futile apart from God, vital, meaningful. See, the gospel gives us purpose. It gives us the foundation for knowing right and wrong. It gives us Gives us the, offers us the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. It offers us the transformation to become the people we are always meant to be. To take the 
the twisted image of God, what we've done with the image of God twisted by sin and to start becoming people that truly reflect the very character of God. And it gives us something of eternal value to bring to other people. The gospel offers us salvation. And he goes on a little further in verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Now, so he's saying, yeah, this salvation gives us forgiveness of sins and therefore a relationship with God. See, the law couldn't do it. A lot of people think religion can get us to God. And he says, no, it doesn't work. The law wasn't put there so that we could have a stepping stone to God and say, look it, I am worthy. The law shows us that we're sin because we can't keep it. And if we think we can keep the external part of the law, do not murder, the law really means underneath that, don't have anger and bitterness in your heart ever. The law reveals we all need a savior. It isn't our savior. So it brings forgiveness of sin. And then it says all other things. And I believe that's all other things that forgiveness brings us. You see, we, when we sin, when we do wrong, if we truly face it, we have guilt and shame. After Adam and Eve sinned, they covered their nakedness because they felt ashamed. They could no longer be authentic. In shame cultures, where people take guilt very, very seriously and personal, Shame can destroy a person's life and often leads to suicide. In the Western culture, we try to do away with shame. And we do it through what psychology calls defense mechanisms. Uh, the site simply, psychology says, we use defense mechanisms to protect ourselves from feelings of anxiety or guilt. You see, some of those defense mechanisms, denial, I didn't do it. Blame, somebody else did it. Projection, they're the bad people. Reaction formation, I can make up for it. These are all ways of trying to deal with our guilt without facing our guilt. Covering it up just like Adam and Eve did with the fig leaves. The gospel deals with our guilt and shame. Christ covers us with his righteousness. There is complete forgiveness because Christ took our guilt, Christ took our shame, so we wouldn't have to live in it. A fifth reason we should have confidence in the gospel is the gospel averts the judgment of God. Paul says at the end of his message in verse 40, Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets would come about. Look, you scoffers, be astonished and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. And what he culminates the sermon with, I've given you the message. 
If you are a scoffer, you will perish. You are condemned. Those are very harsh sounding words, but necessary words. We are willing to hear harsh verdicts from our physicians because we know that's the beginning of healing. My wife did not want to hear you have cancer. She needed to hear that. The doctor wasn't mean-spirited, hurtful, trying to be condemning. He was trying to be loving. Uh, one free-speaking <clears throat> celebrity whose license plates are atheist, godless, no god. He couldn't get the one infidel. They wouldn't give it to him, and he still wonders why. He said this, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. If you believe that there is a heaven or hell, or that people could go, be going to hell or not get eternal life, and you think it's not really worth telling them this because it would be socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and you don't tell them about it? It is not an evil thing. It is a good thing. John 3.16, every, most people know God so loved the world he sent his son. John 17 reads, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The gospel brings a message. We are condemned. But God didn't send Jesus to say, you're condemned, you're condemned, you're condemned. There's no help, hope. He sent Jesus to be the hope out of it. And yet, if we don't receive it, Verse 18 of John 3, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because he just hasn't accepted the gift. He's not believed in Jesus. Jesus came to take us out of what is a reality right now, our condemnation. We need to say yes to him as savior. If we don't, we've rejected the medicine that brings us eternal life. We've seen in Paul five reasons to be confident in the gospel. And I know my tendency is gonna walk out of here and say, I can give you those five reasons to be confident. But will I become more confident and share the gospel? Will I allow these truths to resonate in my life? May I allow them to confront my fears and the fears and anxieties that the culture around me might raise? Will I meet my lack of confidence with the glory that the gospel has to offer that so many people so desperately need? Our Father, work in me 
what I just spoke about and work that same into each one of us who believes. And Lord, if there's anyone here who is not yet a believer, may they examine what we said this morning and may your spirit resonate the truth of it. Amen.